Morning, everybody. Uh, let me give you a heads up on Christmas schedule. Next Sunday, we gather both services, celebrate Christmas uh, next Sunday on the 19th. On the 24th, I think that's a Friday, we'll have two Christmas Eve services, 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. So you can come to either. It'll be our candlelight Christmas Eve service. We'd love to have you. And invite a friend. It's a great time to invite folks during the Christmas season. People tend to be more inclined to come to church. So please be inviting uh, either the 19th or the 24th, either service. Day after Christmas, we're going to have one service, 11 o'clock. We'll have coffee, juice, light breakfast stuff uh, at uh, 1030. So you can come early, a little fellowship and uh, get some breakfast, and then we'll worship at 11, or second breakfast probably for some of you. And, and then the following Sunday, January 2, we'll do the same. We'll do coffee refreshments at 10.30 and uh, one service at 11. So we'll, we'll be able to get the first service folks in uh, through the holidays. And then we're going to kick off uh, January with our study. Our study uh, this year, our Revive Conference study, is going to be on sorrow and suffering. We're going to take a deep dive into what the Bible has to say about dealing with the issue of suffering and sorrow. A very uh, pertinent topic for us, and, and I'll be looking forward to seeing you for that. It'll be our four-day January Bible conference. All right, we're in Luke 20 this morning. I was uh, counseling someone not too long ago, and they were telling me they've got a family member who is making a decision to, to live an unbiblical lifestyle. They're choosing uh, a different lifestyle. And it, it was a lot of conflict in the family as a result of that. And the person was, said to me, Pastor Dwayne, I, I don't know what to do. I, I said, I, I love this family member, but I, I can't accept their lifestyle choice. And I said, no, you, you actually can't. And they said, but the problem is that this person said to me that to reject one part of me is to reject all of me. And so it's a kind of an all or nothing deal. And so put that person in a real bind, you know, after saying that. Difficult choices. And, and you know, I was, I was thinking about that, praying for that person the other day. And I was thinking, you know, in some ways, that's what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 20, it seems like, like Jesus is giving this ultimatum that you have to accept all of me or you, or you reject all of me. You can't just accept a part of me. Or another way to say it is to reject a part of me is to reject all of me. And I think that is pertinent for Christmas because, you know, Christmas is a time we, we look at Jesus and he's a cute little baby in a manger, right? He's this innocent Christ child and and, and there's peace and, and goodwill towards men, and all those are really important topics. But at the same time, the, the innocent baby in the manger is also the, the righteous judge uh, of the universe who's going to come one day and condemn people to hell forever. Merry Christmas. But a lot of people don't mind accepting the first part, the cute little baby in a manger, but they, they're going to reject the second part, that Christ is our righteous judge. And yet, as we look to Luke 20, Jesus is going to say, you, you can't do that. To, to accept me is to accept all of who I am, is to accept my authority, is to accept my position, my power, and my role, and my purpose. 
To reject any of that is to reject all of me, and we're going to see that clearly in Luke 20. The question is, it's possible that you might actually reject Jesus at Christmas. There's a potential that because you say, well, I like this part of Jesus, but I don't like that part, or I'm willing to submit to this, but not necessarily to that, it's possible that you may reject the Christ of Christmas. And what I hope Luke is going to help us to understand today is that either we accept the full authority of Christ or we'll stumble over him completely. It's, it's sort of an either or. Accept his full authority or he becomes a stumbling block for you. There have been many who have made the decision to reject Christ's power and authority over them. Such was the case in the story that we'll be reading here in Luke 20, verse 1. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came and said to them, said to Jesus, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? And who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed this amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, then all of the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, saying that they didn't know its origin. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Luke 20 is the last day where Jesus has a public ministry. This is his last day at work on earth. He had just two days before had, had come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people were laying uh, palm branches down and declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus is ushered into Jerusalem with these shouts of Hosanna and then he makes his way to the temple because it's Passover week and he's come to pray. And when he gets into the temple courts, he sees nothing but chaos. And then, and then there are entrepreneurs who had, who had come to make a bunch of money because you see there are thousands of Jews flocking into Jerusalem and they need to be able to present a, an animal sacrifice that is worthy of Passover and often they didn't have one on their own so they had to buy a sacrificial lamb and in order to do that, they had to buy it with temple money. They didn't have temple money, and so they had to exchange money. And there's all these money changers, and they're just ripping off all these Jews, and it just makes Jesus so mad that they had taken the house of God and, and turned it into just a marketplace. And Jesus violently ushers everybody out, overturns tables, and kicks everybody out, and he cleanses the temple to which the temple officials, who were the, the chief priests at the time, the Pharisees, who were responsible for all the religious affairs at the time, and other leaders, the, the political uh, and the tribal leaders of Israel, they all took notice of this, and they all became very worried about this Jesus and all the disruption 
that had taken place. Now, as you know, that they had already set their hearts against Jesus and they were looking for ways to to betray him and even at this point to kill him. And so after all this takes place, Jesus, he, he does what anyone would do if you knew this was your last day on earth, you'd tell people about the gospel and the kingdom. I mean, I hope if tomorrow was your last day of work that you would spend your day telling others the good news about the kingdom. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was there in the temple and, and, and the crowds would gather around him and he'd tell them stuff about his kingdom like he had been doing for the last three years. He preached the good news. He talked about belief and prayer and repentance. He talked about faith. He invited everybody to believe in him and, and take part of his kingdom. He talked about what was going to happen at the end of the age. He, he, he explained all of these good things. And as he was teaching, the crowd took notice. They were like, there's something different about him. First of all, he, his message is different than, than the normal uh, rabbis. He, he preaches differently than these, these Pharisees. The Pharisees, they, they love to talk about other Pharisees and what other Pharisees taught. Jesus doesn't care anything about that. This man speaks with authority his message is different it's 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 unique and and there became an obvious difference between the message of christ and the good news that jesus proclaimed and the message that the pharisees used to teach i mean the pharisees they they love to, to demand these external works christ urged people to believe from the heart. The, the, the Pharisees loved to, to demand outward conformity where, where Jesus talked about this inward transformation. The Pharisees demanded ritualistic duty. But Jesus, he talked about obedience coming, flowing from, from a loving heart. His message was so different. And he spoke with, with such authority that eventually the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him. Now, when you combine this group, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, you, you have this motley crew that we call the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the highest official governing body of Israel at that time. There was no king that they had accepted, even though there was, you know, a, a Roman uh, uh, appointed leader. No, for the Jews, it was the Sanhedrin that they saw as their leaders. And they had been leading for some time. The chief priests would have been the, the highest elected official. And then after a year, there's another chief priest who's elected. And, and then all the former chief priests are still called chief priests, sort of like we call all of our past presidents, we still call them president. And they did that thing. The scribes represented those who were the experts in the scriptures or the law or the oral traditions. Many of them were Pharisees. And, and, and if there was ever a question as to what scripture says or what our tradition says, they were the ones that interpreted that. And the elders were the elders of old. They were the ones responsible for the tribes of Israel. They were the clan leaders. And when you put all of these three together, you have the Sanhedrin. And all three looked at Jesus and they said, what's your deal? Who are you? Some saw him as a renegade. Some, some saw him as some sort of prophet. Some, some saw him as a rebel. But the consensus was this troublemaker needs to go. 
because he's speaking with an authority that doesn't come from us. And so the chief priest says, hey, I'm, I'm a chief priest. I have authority. Who are you? You have no authority. And the scribes and the Pharisees say, look, we are, we are the ones responsible for, for all the teaching that goes on here in the temple. And we have authority. What are you doing here? You have no authority. And the elders said, look, we, we're, we are the leaders of the tribes of Israel. We, we have a lot of authority. You have no authority. Who are you? And they all said, Jesus, by whose authority do you speak? And Jesus knew they didn't care about the answer to the question. Jesus knew their hearts. And so Jesus did something that he had done in the past. This is not uncommon for Jesus. He simply answers the question with another question. He, he, he poses an argument to them from the lesser to the greater, from John to himself, and he says, hey, look, I'll answer your question, but first, why don't you answer my question? Since we're talking about authority, just simply tell me, when John was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, when John was preaching repentance, by whose authority did John speak? Did that authority come from heaven, or was that just the authority granted by uh, the people here? And immediately the Sanhedrin found themselves in a conundrum. They've asked the question, Jesus has uh, responded, and now they have to answer. And so they probably huddled themselves around one of the corners there in the temple, and they start talking, okay, now what do we do? I can just imagine that. One of the Pharisees saying, I told you not to ask that question. That was a dumb question. Now what are we going to do? And if we say that, of course, John's authority came from heaven, then, then Jesus is going to simply say, oh, it did. Then why didn't you believe it? Because he preached the same good news that I've been preaching. Repentance and faith, and you enter the kingdom. John is the one who, who said about me, Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why didn't you believe him? Well, we can't do that. We can't say John's authority came from God. Well, if we say John's authority simply came as the result of the crowd, they all believe John was a great prophet. As a matter of fact, Jesus did too. Jesus called John the greatest of the prophets because he was the only prophet who saw the Messiah. Jesus agreed with the crowd. If we say that, they're going to stone us. We're in a conundrum. So what do we do? They came back to Jesus and they, they pled the fifth. They became agnostic all of a sudden. We don't know. Oh, you're the chief priests. You're the scribes. You're the elders of Israel. You're agnostic. You don't know. Jesus says, well, if you don't know the answer to that question, then I don't know the answer to the other. So I guess we're just going to end this conversation. I'm not going to tell you by whose authority do I preach. Hmm. And Jesus, being our wise King and Lord, simply applied Proverbs 26 and verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. You see, in the end, the Sanhedrin didn't want to know the truth. 
They were just looking for a way to claim treason against Jesus. In the end, they were cowards. You know, a coward is. A coward is someone who's willing to criticize you but has nothing to say when you pose them the question, okay, then what do you believe and why? I mean, anybody who publicly criticizes my faith and is not willing to discuss it with me is a coward. There are a lot of cowards these days. Well, there's a lot of people who are critical about Christianity, and there's a lot of people critical about the church. But when you just say, well, let's have a conversation about this, bring your Bible, they say, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to say. Just want to criticize. Well, the fact is, friends, whether someone claims to be agnostic or not, everyone has an authority that guides them. And often there are multiple authorities that guide them. You have them, and I have them. And you bow to your authorities. Now, I want to commend Kenneth and Patrick here. I'm sitting with their wives and, and Jay. The last month, they've been teaching our students about authorities. They're doing a little series on Sunday nights about gender and sexuality and how God made us. And we've been teaching them that, that, that there are authority structures in our lives and you have to decide which authority structures are, are the most important. And we've been telling them that, that there are four major authorities that that affect all of us. And the first is Scripture, which is God's divine revelation. The second authority is tradition, which are the truths that have been passed down to us. The third authority that, that we all have is reason. When we confirm that which is true or right by way of rational thinking. And the last authority is the authority of experience, personal experience, where you verify something personally. Now, when all four of these authorities are in agreement, then, well, now, that's wonderful. But you see, often they're not. And when these authorities are not in agreement, you have to decide which is the more important authority. And I'm saying that because you do have to decide this. You do have to. Now, when your authorities come in conflict, which one wins out? And I'll just tell you, for me, Scripture wins out. Always. God and what he has revealed in his word is my sole authority on all matters of life and godliness. The word of God to me is true, period, all of it. I either accept it all or I have rejected it all because that's what it says. That is my chief authority. And whenever tradition agrees with the word of God, then I agree with tradition. Whenever reason agrees with the word of God, then I agree with reason. And whenever my personal experience agrees with the word of God, then I agree with my personal experience. But if my personal experience does not agree with God's word, I have a decision to make. I either claim myself as authority or I bow to the word of God as my authority. And friends, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard for me to bow 
because I want my personal experience or my own thinking about things to be the ultimate authority. And that's why we're, we're having to have this discussion with, with our students because let's just simply take the issue of gender, which was never really an issue of discussion you know, five to 10 years ago, but it is today. And let's, let's put it to the test. Well, someone may say, from the authority of personal experience, I ought to have the right to choose my gender. I should be able to verify who I am. I get to make that decision. And there are some today who would say that the authority of personal experience should win the day. Even though reason would tell us, no, you can't do that because you are a biological being. Every cell in your body tells you who you are. It informs you. So reason would not agree that you can change. Tradition would say, eh, actually, you can't change. I mean, what has been handed down to us historically is that there's male and female. That's it. But even if personal experience or reason or tradition would agree that someone can choose their gender, the Bible does not. And it never will. It can only be interpreted one way because it was only meant to say one thing when it was written, and it is clear that it is God who decides these important matters. And so now you have to ask the question, what is your chief authority? That is exactly the question that Jesus was penning to the religious leaders. Because the Sanhedrin had decided that tradition, Jewish tradition, was the final authority. Even the scriptures would have to speak underneath the authority of their tradition. It's not unlike what Roman Catholics do today. The teachings of the papacy will often overrule the teachings of Scripture. And so Jesus is simply saying, tell me who your authority is. And if you decide you don't know, then, well, then maybe you better figure that out first. Let me take another example. Because it's Christmas time, let's talk about the virgin birth. I think the virgin birth is an essential doctrine of our faith. Now, let's, let's go with the, 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 the position of, of personal experience. I can tell you that I have never experienced a virgin birth. I can guarantee you that I have been present at the conception of every child that my wife and I have had. So personal experience would say there's no virgin birth. Reason would tell me there's no virgin birth. Scientifically, there's no way that that could ever happen. A virgin cannot bear a child. Although my tradition tells me that there is such a thing, and that thing has been passed around for centuries, and they believe that it happened and it was miraculous. Now, okay, so now my, my authorities are in contradiction. Where do I go? I go to the Word of God, and guess what it tells me? <laughs> A virgin named Mary gave birth to a son, conceived of the Holy Spirit. The authority of God's word for me wins. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in it. I rest my salvation on it. And, and so, you see, for me, Scripture being absolutely true, its authority, then, is what guides me. And so I see Jesus as my authority. Friends, listen. 
When the authority of Scripture begins to collapse, the authority of Christ collapses. That's why there are thousands of churches that will gather today, and there will be people like me standing in front of a congregation, and they will gladly say the Bible is not true, not all of it. And then out of the same breath, they will gladly say, well, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good example. Because when the authority of the Scriptures collapse, the authority of Christ collapses. And when the authority of Christ collapses, the authority of the church collapses. And when the authority of the church collapses, so does culture. We're witnessing that today. Oh, but not here at Open Door. <laughs> not here. Now, unfortunately, these, these leaders rejected Christ's authority. And it is just as unfortunate that they also rejected Christ's position. And in rejecting the position that belongs to Christ, Jesus decided to tell all of the people that were now interested in what was going on in the temple, he decided to tell a story. Now, this story, is a, this parable uh, is, is one that's pretty easy to understand. It's an analogy, and it has several characters, and let me explain, because in all of Jesus' parables, he, there's typically a, a master or a king or a lord figure, and this story has that, and, and it will be the owner of the vineyard, and that owner of the vineyard is God. Okay? Then, like most of Jesus' parables, there are both faithful people and unfaithful people. Now, the unfaithful people in this parable represent the Sanhedrin. And in this story, they will be the tenant farmers, the ones who are responsible for the vineyard. The vineyard represents Israel. And that's a common, actually, analogy to Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, uh, the, the prophet said, and, and in the vineyard of the Lord is the nation of Israel. So, so everyone would have understood when Jesus starts talking about the vineyard, he's talking about the nation of Israel. The tenant farmers are responsible for the vineyard, the nation, and then, then the, the owner or God sends servants to help care and correct what's going on, and the servants are the Old Testament prophets and preachers. God, the vineyard, the tenant farmers, the servants, the prophets and the preachers, and the last character is one that Jesus calls the son. And you'll figure out who that is, I'm sure. Let me tell you the story. A, a man, God, planted a vineyard, Israel, and leased it to tenant farmers, the leaders. In, in Jesus' day, that would have been the Sanhedrin. And God goes away for a very long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant, a prophet, to the farmers so that they might give some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed, like many of the Old Testament prophets or preachers. So, the, the man, God, the vineyard owner, he sent another servant and they beat that one too and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And now, what does the owner do? He sends another servant. But they wounded this one too and they threw him out, which is basically, in essence, the entire story of the Old Testament. 
Our glorious and sovereign God elects a people of his own, Israel. From out of nothing, he conceives and gives birth to this people. He calls them his vineyard. He gives them a land. And he creates a covenant with them. And then God appoints leaders, priests, kings. And in Jesus' day, you have this, this group called the Sanhedrin, and they are responsible for the government of God's vineyard. But historically, what happened was that those that God allowed to be leaders actually turns God's vineyard, God's people, away from him towards idolatry. You know, they allow all kind of corruption into God's vineyard. All kinds of weeds come into the garden. And so God would send prophets. And the prophets would come and say, hey, stop this. You are being disobedient people. You have a covenant with God. You need to worship him alone and love him and love each other. You're, this is not how you are supposed to act. And as the prophet began to preach, the leaders of Israel didn't like it. And so they often rejected these servants of the vineyard. And at times they killed them. And that story rings true, unfortunately, throughout the Old Testament. Well, now the vineyard owner, verse 13, says, what should I do? And, and he says, oh, I know what I'll do. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. The very things that they were plotting against Jesus, Jesus just exposed right there in the temple. He read them like a book. And now the end of the story. They've killed the son of the vineyard owner. So what is the owner of the vineyard to do? He will come and he will kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. That last word, friends, if you're a follower of Christ, is where you come in. You're the others. Now the vineyard belongs to you. Will you be a good tenant farmer or not? Will you be faithful or not? Because now the vineyard belongs to us, the church. And, and so Jesus tells this incredible story. And he basically is... Here on his last day of, of, of his earthly ministry, he's basically putting an end to the old covenant. He's beginning to, to offer a new covenant relationship with the others, with us. <laughs> but what, what was responsible for Israel now in the old becomes responsible for us in the new because, you see, God wants to reap a harvest of souls for his kingdom all over the world. That, that's why we, we celebrate missions at Christmas time and at all other times. 
That's why this, this thing about sending is so important, whether we send Melody to Utah or, or, or send uh, Mulberry to, to Thailand and, and in many others, and we'll just keep doing it over and over. Because with the vineyard now belongs to us and when we're supposed to expand it so that God will be glorified and reap the harvest of souls scattered everywhere. That's why we ask you to give, to support missions. Because as a church, we, we must neither reject the authority of Christ, but, but we, we, we can also reject the position of Christ. He is the Son who was sent to establish the vineyard, his kingdom. And we must accept him and receive him in totality because if we reject his authority, if we reject his position, then we're also going to end up rejecting his, his purpose. It's interesting to me, if, if you look at the end of verse 16 and then 17, when... Um, the people heard this. They all understood it by now, and they said, that must never happen. They were like, what do you mean? We're the vineyard. We know that. What do you mean the vineyard gets destroyed? What do you mean? That must never happen. To which Jesus looked at them and says, you haven't read your Bible. And then he quotes Psalm 118 and 22, Isaiah 28 and 16, I believe. And he, he says this. This is the meaning of the scriptures. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will shatter them. Look at that very closely. There's no win in that verse. Either you stumble over the stone and you get broken or you delay and the stone falls on you and you get crushed. You fall, you're broken. It falls, you're crushed. Either way, you're in danger. Either way, you're in danger. Do you get this? You reject Jesus, what do you do with him? You can't avoid him. You can't avoid Jesus. Well, I don't believe, then you've just stumbled over and you're going to get broken. I don't care, I reject him. One day when he returns, you're going to wish you hadn't. Because one day when he returns, he will crush you. Stumble and be broken. Delay and be crushed. And Jesus is saying... Either way, these religious leaders are in deep trouble. And I, I wasn't looking for a personal illustration of this, but just the other day, 57-year-old Dwayne falls on, over a step. And it was a cement step. And in that moment, I learned something about cement that I'd never learned before. Cement is, is, is more dense than Duane is. That's what I learned. Cement actually is immovable. And, and I'm, I'm not that. And so, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a rib who's reminding me that, that, that the stone that I stumbled over can break me. You fall on it, you break. 
But now if cement were to fall on me, it would crush me. Jesus is saying, listen, if you reject my authority and if you reject my position, then you're going to reject my purpose. Do you know what my purpose is? I have come here to be the foundational stone of a kingdom, of a forever kingdom. I'm the chief cornerstone of it. The people of God, which now we know is the church, is built upon me. And to reject me is to stumble. To deny me, one day in the day of judgment, you will be crushed. And even though Jesus told this, the end result was simply, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour. But because they knew he had told this parable against them, they were afraid of the people. Of course they were. They were cowards. But just the next day, they would figure it out, and they would get one of Jesus' disciples, his name was Judas, to have a meeting, and they gave him a little bit of money, and they said, how about this? You keep the money. Just help us trap Jesus. And Judas betrays him. And then they falsely accuse Jesus. They make up all kinds of lies about him. And then they manipulate Pilate, the Roman governor, to have him crucified. And sure enough, just as the parable said, they take the son out of the vineyard and they kill him. Mm. But they didn't realize who the son was. This, This person who kept calling himself the son of man He was also the son of God. And three days later, he just simply resurrects. (laughs) And death can't hold him down. And he proves his resurrection. And then a few days later, off he is to heaven to take his rightful position at the right hand of God, to which then he sends the Spirit to establish his church, to which we now, as a part of the church, we simply proclaim this as truth. We, as Paul told us to do, we preach Christ crucified. Which to this day is a stumbling block to Israel, and to this day is foolishness to the Gentiles. But that doesn't matter. We keep proclaiming it. And the message is this. I know it's Christmas, but you cannot simply say, I believe in the innocent baby in the manger without also believing he is the righteous judge over sin and death. You either accept all of him or you've rejected all of him. Let's pray. Father, the last thing that I would want from anyone here today is to stumble over Christ at Christmas. So I plead that your spirit might help all of us to believe in the totality of who Jesus is born of a virgin, declared a righteous judge. He is all and more. And Father, this Christmas, I I pray that we would build our lives upon the firm foundation of Christ, who is the chief cornerstone of his church, the one revealed by the authority of God's word. And may we submit to that authority. Father, please help us 
not to believe we are our own authority, not in any way. Help us not to stumble. Help us not to be broken. And if there's someone here today who is not a Christian, I beg, Father, that your spirit might help them to see Christ as Savior and as Lord. And upon receiving the free gift of salvation by repenting of their sins, they may now establish their lives upon Christ as we have. And what a joyous Christmas this will be. Thank you, Father, for the truth revealed in the authority of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.